Our reading today is from Ruth 2, 1 through 17. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. Thanks. You can be seated. I recently read a uh, a book that was published last year uh, called Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, by a man named J.D. Vance. It's an incredible, it's an incredible read, uh, very worthwhile. But Vance tells his own story uh, in a way that mirrors what he believes is happening uh, in American culture at large. Uh, Vance comes from a family of people who grew up uh, in Kentucky, in the coal mining towns of Kentucky. And his grandparents, a generation ago, uh, as the coal industry began to dry up there in Kentucky, they were recruited to go and find work in the uh, manufacturing cities of the Midwest. And so they picked up from Kentucky and moved to Ohio. And now a generation since, now the manufacturing jobs in the Midwest are starting to dry up. And so in an attempt to escape generational cyclical poverty, they've come into a situation where they find themselves again dealing with poverty, unable to get out of it. And so he tells this story. Um, of largely the plight of the poor in America, particularly the the plight of uh, the white rural working poor, and the ways that over time, over these generations of poverty, how uh, dysfunction has set in. 
He bore it in his own life. His mother, uh, his single mother, became an, uh, addicted to prescription opioids. She uh, went from relationship to relationship over the course of his childhood. Uh, she, he was in and out of five different men's homes, husbands, boyfriends, things like that, rarely knew a stable male influence in his life. As his mother's uh, relational dysfunction uh, continued as her addiction progressed and grew, their relationship became increasingly toxic. Uh, one day in a, in a tragic scene, it kind of culminates with uh, her becoming abusive to him in a car, him running out of the car at a red light, running to a, an unknown neighbor's house to try to call the police and get help, federal employees becoming involved, uh, his mother going to trial. And over the midst of this chaos, this incredibly chaotic childhood that J.D. Uh, lived in, there was one constant presence in his life, his mama and his papa, his grandparents. Uh, they were for him in the midst of this chaos. They were a, a, a constant source. Mama, if she was a fictional character, would be one of the funniest, uh, most amazing characters I've ever read. She is an absolute hoot. But the presence that they had in his life, they rescued him from going into the foster care system when he was taken away from, from their, their daughter, his mom. As she got healthy, as she got clean uh, through rehabilitation, they said, you're going to live with us. You're always going to have a place under our home, under our roof. As your mom gets healthy, you can go back there as much as you want, but no one is taking you from us. Vance narrates a scene where right after uh, the midst of this terrible incident, his, his grandfather was going to go out and pick up Wendy's takeout uh, for the family. And J.D. was laying on a couch, half asleep, watching TV, exhausted from the day. And he feels his grandfather place his hand over his head. The stoic grandfather, who rarely expressed emotion, placed his hand over his head and wept. Wept over his grandson, wept over what had happened. But he had this resolve that nothing was going to harm this life. He was going to be a rescuer of this child. J.D., it's not spoiling the book to say that he goes on to this incredibly fruitful life out of such a difficult upbringing. He goes on and joins the Marines. Uh, from there, he goes to Ohio State, uh, graduates in a couple of years from Ohio State, goes on to Yale Law School, now has an incredibly uh, successful life. And the thing that he credits for the fruitfulness of his life, the thing that he says sets him apart from so many of his classmates and friends that had very, very similar upbringing, the reason his life has gone differently than theirs is because of the incredible love and tenacious kindness of his grandparents. Over the course of this series, remember we've said that poverty at a fundamental level is a relational thing. More than the absence of money, it's the, it's the brokenness of relationships, the not having anyone there for you when you're in need. And Vance says that when I was in the, my most vulnerable, my most terrible need, I had somebody. I had my mama and I had my papa, and that's what saved me. That's what set me on a better trajectory. The story of their love for him, I think, is an incredible story, an incredible example of what is Christian hospitality. Hospitality, that's a, that's a word that, that story may not seem to be hospitality to us. We can, uh, in our culture, when we think hospitality, very often we think Southern living, uh, we think Martha Stewart, we think uh, Pinterest pictures of impossible to replicate recipes and parties, right? We think that hospitality is the ability to entertain and to be a hostess or a host, right? It's especially in the South, there's all this weight of expectations of what can come with the idea of hospitality. But biblically, 
Hospitality is exactly this. The willingness to extend the sheltering kindness of God to neighbors in need. To be willing to offer a home to the homeless, a shelter to the shelterless, food for the hungry, a drink for the thirsty. That that is what hospitality is. It's something incredibly more muscular and heroic and brave than simply throwing a nice dinner party. It's the willingness to sacrificially make space for the vulnerable in our shelter. Hospitality has been a mark of God's people, uh, really as long as there's been a people of God. In the Old Testament, hospitality marks out his people. There, there were laws set in place for, to protect the poor and immigrants in particular that would allow them to come, those who didn't have homes, those who didn't have land, to come into the crops of those who did own land and to glean, to take what was left over for themselves. We see Ruth capitalizing on this piece of God's law in Ruth chapter 2. That's what she's doing when she's out among the harvesters, taking what she was allowed by law to take as an immigrant to provide for herself. We see this theme of hospitality move on through the New Testament, right? The Holy Family, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are dependent on the hospitality of an innkeeper in Bethlehem at the very outset of the Gospels. Jesus is dependent on the hospitality of others throughout his life. In the New Testament, the church grows and goes forward through hospitality, right? Did you know that one of the qualifications for elders and deacons in the New Testament is that they be men of hospitality, right? This is more than saying that they know how to bake a turkey and set a table. This is saying that they're supposed to be the kind of people who offer sheltering kindness and mercy to those who are in need. Those who, people in the community know that when they're in need, they can look to people of this kind of character to find hospitality. And it was Christian hospitality uh, that led to much of the missionary expansion of the church in its early days. In a world without hotels, in a world without hospitals, churches and monasteries became beacons of hospitality in the Western world. And so it's that kind of hospitality that I think we deal with uh, in this chapter. This kind of, of, of a man named Boaz, who we're meeting now for the first time, extender, extending the sheltering kindness of God to a woman in need. We do meet Boaz for the first time in this chapter, and Boaz is kind of a big deal. Boaz is a, is a big deal in the story of Ruth and in his own community. He's introduced to us uh, in, verse, uh, in verse 1 as a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. The author uh, is using a bit of a play on words here. When he says that Boaz is a worthy man, the Hebrew word is ha'il, that he's a ha'il. And this is a, a word that has a bit of a double entendre. It means both a high-born or noble man, somebody who has power and privilege and position in a community. Uh, so he is a noble man. But it also has another, another force, which is to describe someone of noble character, someone of worthy or praiseworthy character. And so that's the tension that drives this scene is, is Ruth, this woman who's in a position of poverty and vulnerability, comes before a, a worthy man. I think the English word noble really does kind of get the, the dual force of it. She comes before a noble man and she finds herself vulnerable before him. And in the tension of this scene of a noble man meeting this vulnerable woman, the question that's getting asked is, is, is Boaz simply a noble man or is he also somebody of noble character? Is he also someone whose character is worthy? 
Because those two things don't always exist in the same person, right? Sometimes they do. Sometimes there's people who are both powerful and good, right, and trustworthy and merciful. But plenty of times there's not. There's people who are powerful, they're privileged, they have positional authority, but they have no moral capacity. They have no moral authority. And so the question that's getting tested here is, is Boaz merely a nobleman or is he a noble man? Will he extend God's mercy to her from his position of power? And what we're going to see over the course of this as it plays out is that Boaz is indeed a heroic man. That he is a noble man, not only in birth, but in character. And we're going to see that uh, in what uh, Boaz shows us that he believes in what he sees and in what he does. We see an image, uh, a picture into what it looks like uh, to be a noble person to be a merciful person in what Boaz uh, believes and what he sees and in what he does. First, we get a window into Boaz's theology, uh, into what it is that he believes. Look at uh, verse 12 of this chapter. He says to, to Ruth, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The, the words that he uses here, is, it's, it's that God would make her whole. He sees what's missing in her life. He sees what's been taken from her as a widow, as a foreigner, as an immigrant. And he says, may God, God repay and make you whole. May the God that you've clung to, may you find shelter under his wings. Now, this is an interesting metaphor for God. You know, the, the, as we come to the Bible, we come to people who run into the ends of words' ability to describe what's transcendent, right? And so over and over, the biblical authors give us these metaphors, these word pictures for what God's like. But ultimately, all human words are, are an attempt to kind of paint a picture of something that's, that's above and beyond human understanding. And so they use images, right? In, in, our, in the psalm that we read as our call to worship, God's likened to a shepherd, Right now, we don't believe that that means that God is literally up in heaven with, with some sheep and a, and, a, and a crook. But it believes that metaphorically, he's telling us that there's something about the character of a shepherd, his care, his tenderness, his strength, that paints a picture of God. Elsewhere, God is, is likened to a father or like a judge, like a king. Right? There's all of these different images that, that the biblical authors use to paint a full picture of what God is like. And of all of the metaphors, of all of the biblically sanctioned pictures that Boaz had at his disposal to describe God, he clings to this one, the image of a mother bird hiding her young under her wings. It's one of, the, it's one of really the most unique pictures that is given to God in the scriptures. That in the midst of this wealth of fatherhood imagery that's used of God, there's this one unabashedly maternal image of God, that God is like a mama bird who takes her chicks, takes her little babies when they're, when they're too young to fend for themselves, when they're vulnerable, vulnerable before all of the threats and predators of this world. And God is like this mother bird who wants to protect them, huddle them, uh, give them uh, warmth in his presence, give them comfort, give them a shield, give them protection. And Boaz is saying, may this God, may this God who offers shelter in his presence, this God who's like a mother bird, may he cover you with his wings and give you protection. I'll make just a, a brief aside uh, to speak to the mothers uh, in our church. 
and to say that this is why your work as a mom matters so deeply. It's because you model a piece of the image of God to your children. Right, this, this maternal element of God's heart that's not only tenderness and softness and warmth and love, but is also strength and determination and protection, that's giving a life uh, warmth and inclusion and hospitality, that there's something about what it means to be a mother uh, that does portray this part of God's character in a way that nothing else can, in a way that no one else can. And so when Boaz meets Ruth, he says, may you find the shelter that you seek under the wings, under the protection of God. You know, this is a, a valuable, valuable metaphor for God, a valuable picture of God. And it's worth asking us when we look out and when we see our neighbors, particularly our neighbors and all of their vulnerability and need, what images of God do we connect with, right? There's we all know that, that we're far too likely oftentimes to connect the image of God as judge to our neighbors when we think of them, right? When we see the ways that, that many, of, many of the times our neighbors live their lives differently than we do or than we would, that, we're, that it's very easy to, to, to appeal to God as judge, as one who will one day call them into account. And there is some biblical truth to that image. But Boaz, when he looks at Ruth, doesn't seize on that image. He seizes on the image of God, the welcoming, sheltering mother bird who longs to gather her to himself. If Boaz isn't enough of a reason for you to think of God's longing to protect and gather our neighbors to himself, perhaps this one will do better. The Lord Jesus, as he rode into Jerusalem, as he looked out on the city uh, that in a few short days would kill him, would take his life on the cross, in Matthew 35, he looks at, or in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew, he looks out and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. It's amazing, isn't it, to think of Jesus about to enter into the city that was looking at him with murderous intent. And to say, just like you killed the prophets who rode into you before me, I'm coming into you vulnerable and weak, desiring to embrace you as a mother hen would gather her chicks. Right, that God, Jesus, the Lord Jesus, when he looks out at our neighbors, when he looks out upon our city, looks out on them with love and the desire for his sheltering embrace to encompass them. And so the first piece of Boaz's nobility is what we see in his faith, what we see uh, in, his, in what he believes. And then secondly, we see how he sees Ruth. It's amazing in this, in this culture, in this context, that Boaz, a noble and wealthy landowning man, sees Ruth, a vulnerable immigrant, someone who is destitute and poor. He looks at her and he sees beyond her, her status, he sees beyond any of the labels that he might affix to her. He sees beyond just what she looks like on the surface. And he stops and he actually sees her. He sees her as an individual. He sees her in all of her tragedy and in all of her giftedness. He sees her. He, when she asks, what have I done to find favor in your eyes? He's actually able to narrate the details of her story back to her. He sees her not as a kind of person, immigrant, 
widow, poor. But he sees her as an individual. He sees her as a woman with both unique gifts and unique needs. In doing that, he shows again uh, how he's looking out and viewing her with the eyes of God. Right? It's reminiscent. There's a story uh, in the book of Genesis when Hagar, the mother of Ishmael, finds herself uh, weeping alone in the desert with her son, cast out, believing that she's gone into the desert to die. And God speaks to her. And what does she say back to God? She says, you are the God who sees me. You're the God who sees me in all of the ups and downs of this life and all of my victories and my tragedies. Here in my aloneness and my isolation, you're the God who sees me. You don't overlook me. You don't treat me as just one of many. But you see me as an individual and you know me. You know all of the uniqueness of me. So Boaz looks at her and he sees her. He sees her for who she is. And he sees something else. I think that Boaz sees the situation for what it is. Right? Boaz sees the situation for what it is, is a a meeting between somebody and a person, a meeting between two people, one in a position of power and one in a position of vulnerability and weakness. Uh, Theologian and author Andy Crouch has said that, that in this world, after the fall, every human being lives with both power and vulnerability. Right, It's a part of who God's made us to be, that God's given us power. He's given us the ability to make something out of the world. Right, We can love, we can give, we can work, we can shape the world around us, we can make things, we can build. We're capable of building culture, we're capable of building buildings and friendships and marriages. Right, To be a human is to be invested with a certain amount of power. But we also bear with us a certain amount of vulnerability. Right, Some of that is created vulnerability. Right, We're made weak. We're made unable to tend to all of our own needs. We get tired and have to sleep. We get hungry and have to eat. We get thirsty and need a drink. We're dependent on the providence of God and the kindness of others. So a part of it is that we're vulnerable by design. And then after the fall, our vulnerability only increases. Right now we're vulnerable in a world that's also hostile and broken and where we can suffer and be hurt. And so all human beings are both powerful and vulnerable. But in this world, fallen as it is, power and vulnerability aren't equally cast to all of us, right? Some people are more powerful and more privileged than others, and others of us bear more vulnerability and weakness than others, right? In every society, in every culture, in every human interaction, some bear more authority and power and others bear more vulnerability. Others of us have greater capacity to make something out of the world, and others of us are more experiencing being at the whim of the powerful. Sometimes it's for a season, right? In a a household, by design, parents are more powerful and children are more vulnerable, right? So for a season of our lives, ideally, we experience what it is to be vulnerable under somebody who's more powerful than us and yet safe, yet watched out for, flourishing under it, right? So some of that power vulnerability gap is, is by design and for a season. Other times in a culture, right, it can be due to economic forces, Some people have more wealth than others. It can be due to cultural sin, right, where some races or faiths or beliefs are given more privilege and power than others. But in all human interactions, there is and can be and will be in a fallen world an unequal distribution of power and vulnerability. And so here's where Boaz finds himself. We've already said he is a nobleman. He's a powerful man. What will he do 
in this gap? What will he do in the midst of this discrepancy between his power and her vulnerability? You know, I notice it's interesting what Boaz doesn't do, right? He, he doesn't lord his power over her. He doesn't say to himself, well, you know what? In this world, I'm rich and I'm, I'm well off because I worked hard and I did well and she must be where she is because of foolish decisions she made, laziness of character, uh, some type of moral fault in her. So he doesn't say, well, I am where I am on my horse because I deserve it and you're where you are out among the fields because you deserve it. He doesn't lord, her, lord it over her. He also, interestingly, doesn't apologize for it. He don't see any hand-wringing or guilt. We don't see him going, oh, man, I just feel terrible that I've got all this power and position and you don't. I, it really shouldn't be this way. I, we don't see him do that. Instead, what we see him do is leverage his strength, his power, all of his resources to care for her and all of her vulnerability. He treats his power and his privilege very, very loosely. He recognizes that what he has isn't given just for him to better himself, but he lays it down before her to benefit her and her need and in her vulnerability. He shows that what makes a noble character is someone who's willing to leverage whatever abilities we have, whether they be many or few, whether we think of ourselves as prosperous or not. It's using what we do have, what Boaz does have at his disposal, not for himself, but for another, for another in need. And so he sees her. He sees her in her gifts and her character and her ability. He sees her in her vulnerability and in her need. And he's willing to be a part of the solution for her vulnerability, which raises the question, how do we see our neighbors? How do we, when we look out at our city, how do we see them? Do we have eyes that look for the places where they're vulnerable? Do we have eyes that look for places where they're weak? Do we have eyes that look for ways that whatever bit that God has entrusted to us of this world might be used to bless and to shelter and to extend God's love and mercy? We're going to see some of what that means uh, next because we do have not only what Boaz believes, not only what he sees, but also what he does. Let's look at what Boaz does for this woman. You know, I don't want to step uh, too much on next week's sermon, but there is a, uh, there's an incredible moment in Ruth chapter 3 uh, that we're going to look at next week where we get a picture of, of, what, Ru of what Boaz does. It's in Ruth 3.9. Ruth comes to Boaz, and she says to him, extend your wings over me. Extend your wings over me. Extend your wings over me. What she's doing in a really incredibly bold and provocative way. Remember what Boaz had said to her just a chapter before. May you find shelter under the wings of God. And now she's saying to him, extend your wings over me. In other words, she's saying, put your theology into practice. Right? If you believe that God is a, is a sheltering, loving, and kind God, like a mother bird who extends his wings over his young, you too extend your wings over me. Right? Extend your love, extend your protection over me. And that's exactly what we see Boaz doing for her here. Because Boaz sees in her two particular areas of vulnerability in her life. The first is that he saw something that she lacked, that she was hungry and in need of feeding. That's why she was there in the fields. That, that's what she was after. And so he provides for what she's lacking. He says, feel free. 
to glean among my fields. In fact, don't just glean from what's left over. Don't just go behind the harvesters. But take from the sheaves as well. Take, take not just from what's left over, but go in with them and take the full thing. And take some out of their sacks. Uh, we're told that uh, as she leaves in the last verse, in verse 17, that she had two ephahs of barley, which is about enough to feed her and her mother-in-law, Naomi, for two weeks. So she has about two weeks' worth of grain at the end of this. And so Boaz sees what he has that she lacks, and he gives it to her. And then the other thing that he sees of her vulnerability is that he sees not only that she lacks something, but that also she's, she's vulnerable before a certain threat. We see this when he says, uh, have I not told my young men not to harm you? Have I not told my young men not to harm you? We ought to, frankly, see this for what it is which is that she, as a, migrant farmer, as a migrant farming woman, faced a lot of the very same threats that migrant farming women face in our own day, which is the threat of sexual violence uh, in the fields. Right? Migrant farmers, when they come to that country or they come to our country, find themselves in a position where they're almost powerless and completely uh, subject to the whims of those who own the land, and they find themselves doing their work out vulnerable and alone, many times surrounded by men. And so culture, having not changed all that much over the, these few thousand years, puts these women in a position of incredible need. It's, it's literally no different in the agricultural world of, of 2000s America than it was in the ancient world, that these women are vulnerable to violence and to assault. And so Boaz says, as long as you're with me, I'm protecting you. As long as you're with me, I'm coming between you and any threat that could harm you. I've told my young men, I've used my authority over them to tell them to not touch you, to not harm you, and to leave you alone to do your work. So he protects her, providing for what she lacks. He protects her, giving her a hedge of protection around her that she would not be harmed. This is what uh, Ruth goes on to say is Boaz extending his wings over her, extending uh, his protection, his sheltering kindness and hospitality over her life. This is him putting his theology, his beliefs into practice. You know, this is the reason that theology matters. It's the reason that what we think about God matters. You know, sometimes if you, you think theology, uh, learning more about who God is, right, you can think, oh, well, that's, the, that's what pastors do. That's what elders do. That's what seminary professors do. But theology matters for, for normal, everyday Christians because your theology, what you believe about God, ultimately shapes how you treat the people around you. It ultimately shapes how you view the world, how you view your relationships. So that Boaz, when he's asked by, by Ruth to extend his wings over her, to extend his shelter, he's drawing on an image. He's going, oh, yeah, yeah, you know what? <laughs> I know what God's like. I know, what, I know what the scriptures tell me about who God is and what he wants for her. He wants to shelter her. He wants to embrace her. He wants to, to bring her in. And so I should too. Interestingly, this is the way that God goes from being an abstract theological concept in most people's minds to being a reality is through the mercy and kindness of his people. Right, the, the way that God shows his sheltering kindness to others isn't not by magical wings flapping down from heaven to embrace people. Right, It's rarely, rarely does he send an angel to hug somebody. 
right? The way that God extends his shepherding care to someone isn't by sending a, some type of heavenly shepherd. The way that he extends his, his rule and his kingship isn't by doing it directly. It's by doing it through his people, right? The, 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 the abstract God to so many of our neighbors becomes the real, physical, tangible God through the love and mercy and tangible acts of his people, right? This is, of course, supremely true in the person of Jesus, right? Jesus is all of the metaphors that Scripture uses to paint a picture of God wrapped up into, into human form, right? He is the shepherd. He is the king. He is the judge. He is the mother bird, as we saw in, in, in his words in Matthew, that Jesus is the tangible, physical expression of who God is, and it's ultimately uh, to Jesus that Boaz points. It's ultimately uh, Boaz's kindness to Ruth, his embrace of Ruth, his sheltering of Ruth, his provision and protection for Ruth, ultimately points us towards one who is more real and more substantive and more lasting than Boaz. It points us to Jesus. The one who, you know, the ultimate Hail, noble man, Right? Jesus was born into an impossibly noble situation, a nobility that few of us can ever uh, begin to imagine. He, was, he existed from eternity at the right hand of God, knowing only God's glory and his pleasure and his riches. And yet because of the strength of his love and his character and his goodness, he, he became born as a human being not only loving the vulnerable, but embracing it and entering into it, becoming vulnerable himself. That the price of Jesus' longing to embrace Jerusalem and Jacksonville and all of the places of this world in the embrace of his wings and his love was for the breaking of his own body. It was that he would become the rock that was broken, the body that was broken in order to provide a shelter for us, a shelter against all of the rages and tragedies of this world, that we would find our rest and our place in him. Therefore, because we've tasted that rest in Jesus, that shelter in Jesus, we can look to our neighbors, we can look to our neighborhoods, like Boaz looked to Ruth, seeking to extend what we've known and experienced God to be, a sheltering, loving, hospitable, and welcoming God to our neighbors. We can begin to put some flesh and some bone onto these images that the Bible gives us of God. We can begin to shelter them, to shepherd them, to love them, to give to them. I don't know what it will look like for each of our lives. For some of us, it may be offering a shelter to the homeless. As this, this organization, uh, where we meet, City Rescue Mission, has done for decades. They've heard this call to offer shelter to the shelterless and, and followed through on it. For some of us, it may mean opening our family to the lonely and bringing them in. For others of us, it may, may mean learning to view the children of others is every bit as precious to God as an entitled to a life of flourishing as we view our own. But what I do know is that for the invisible God to be made visible, to be made manifest and tangible in this world, it happens as his people extend the sheltering kindness that we've tasted in Jesus out to our neighbors and our friends. Let's pray together.